0: We are in our second week of this journey. We're calling The Story That Changes Everything. Um, Only 50 weeks left to go. Uh, But if you have your Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. And this morning we find ourselves in the 15th chapter, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 18. And if you're with us and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. After these events, the Lord's word came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you possibly give me since I still have no children? The head of my household is Eliezer, a man from Damascus. He continued, since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. The Lord's word came immediately to him. This man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. Then he brought Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you think you can count them. He continued, this is how many children you will have. Abram trusted the Lord and the Lord recognized Abram's high moral character. He said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram Abram said, Lord God, how do I know that I will actually possess it? He said, bring me a three-year-old female calf, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. He took all of these animals, split them in half, and laid the halves facing each other, but he didn't split the birds. When vultures swooped down on the carcasses, Abram waved them off, and after the sunset, Abram slept deeply, a terrifying and deep darkness settled over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, have no doubt that your descendants will live as immigrants in a land that isn't their own, where they will be oppressed slaves for 400 years. But after I punish the nation they serve, they will leave it with great wealth. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried after a good long life. The fourth generation will return here since the Amorites' wrongdoing won't have reached its peak until then. After the sun had set and darkness had deepened, a smoking vessel with a fiery flame passed between the split open animals. And that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last Sunday we started this journey looking at Genesis chapter 1, especially verses 26 and following, where in this great hymn of creation, we get to humankind. And the text says, and then God created humankind in His image according to His likeness. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them and blessed them. Told them, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. We talked about how Amazing that is, in light of so many of the other ancient creation narratives that oftentimes see humankind really as just the servants or the warriors of the gods, Israel's unique understanding of the God who created all things is that that God also created us to be in relationship with that God, to be co-partners, co-creators, co-laborers in creation And that we've been created with every quality necessary to reflect the love that God gives to us back to God, to each other, to the creation, to the self. It's beautiful, profound, amazing. If you've been joining with us this week, or if you know the text, you know, the story kind of takes a really bad left turn from there. Adam and Eve are in the garden Initially, that seems really beautiful. It's pictured of this unbroken relationship with God. They walk in the cool of the garden. They, there's a mutual relationship with each other. They care for the garden. They're naked and unashamed. They have seemed to have a proper sense of self-understanding. But then they begin to transcend those boundaries. That good gift of freedom that God has given has certain boundaries to it. They fall for the serpentine lie and Uh, John Wesley thinks that the serpentine lie is not just to rebel against God, it's to doubt whether God is really good or not. It's It's a lack of faith that leads Adam and Eve to transcend those boundaries, and immediately everything is a mess. God has to come looking for them. They blame each other. They blame the serpent. Now they're naked and covering themselves, ashamed they are pushed out of the garden, and then we get to Genesis to the second generation, which turns into a mess too, right? Cain and Abel. They offer these gifts to God, and God prefers Abel's gift over Cain. Um, we've talked about this text in the past, but uh, my friend Brad Kelly, uh, some of you may have listened to the interview on the podcast this week. He really helped me here. I, I'm going to steal this and preach it again sometime, but. But Brad argued, perhaps we don't even know why God preferred Abel's gift over Cain's on purpose. Perhaps it's there to remind us that sometimes we feel like we're doing all this work and we're only getting this much out of it, but my neighbor is doing half as much work as me and seems to be getting even more out of it. The question isn't why does that happen? The question is, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to allow that Cain to turn into bitterness and anger and rivalry? Are you going to let that turn into violence against one's neighbor? And God warns Cain, listen, you can master this. But but the sin that crouches at Cain's door, he doesn't master. and He kills his brother Abel. A few generations later, Lamech, his ancestor, sings a song about violence. We get to the Noah story, and we get God looking at creation, seeing that's corrupt and filled with violence. Later, after they get out of the ark, God says, now go, spread out, right? Go spread out across the earth. And instead, they go and build a city and huddle together, and they try to build a tower to the heavens, try to create uniformity or or unity through uniformity. And in that human pride, it, it ends up even more scattered and broken. The whole text is about how this sin, this brokenness, seems to continue to spiral deeper and deeper. And it moves just from individual sin and brokenness into the very corruption of all of our systems and structures, empires. If there's a key verse here, if you have your Bible open, if there's a key verse in all of this, it's, it's a kind of summary that's spoken by God in Genesis 8.21, where after the flood is over, he says to Noah and his family, I will not curse the fertile land anymore because of human beings, since the ideas of the human mind are evil from their youth. Some of you who have the NRSV or NIV it says this, I won't do that anymore because the inclination of the human heart is, is evil. It doesn't mean we are evil or our hearts are evil. It means that there is something about us that, that bends towards that which is broken and brings destruction. And we know that part of the story well. You, you don't have to be a great biblical scholar to know that one. Just read the newspaper, watch the news. And so part of the question is then how is God going to respond to this ever-increasing brokenness? And here's how these first chapters of Genesis narrate that. I love this. Brad helped me with this this week too. I've never noticed before. I've talked a lot about exile. I don't know if you recognize that, but I've mentioned it a couple of times. But the creation story is a kind of exile story where Adam and Eve are sent out of the land. But as Brad reminded me this week, God goes with them into exile. God does not stay in Eden and say, good luck with this. But God journeys with humankind into that exile and hopes of bringing all things back to their redemptive purposes. When we get to the end of the Noah story, God realizes, wow, even after wiping this out and starting over, everything's still kind of broken. How will God respond? We talked about this a few weeks ago. I love this image. God takes his bow and hangs it up, proclaiming, I will not be at war with humankind. Even if the human heart is inclined towards evil, I will not respond in kind, but I will continue to respond in grace and love and mercy. I'm hanging up my bow. And now, in Genesis 12... God calls Abram and Sarai, invites them to separate from their places of provision and security, to be filled with God's presence in order to go be a blessing in the world. And so God is going to work through them. And how's that going? Abram and Sarai follow, and they barely get into the story, and Abram gives Sarai away. They run into Egypt because of a famine. And I love this text, by the way. Sarah's getting kind of old. I was joking with the Wednesday night class. In some ways, when you read the text, you wonder, is this about Jewish people thinking their grandmas are kind of sexy? You're supposed to laugh right there. That was a joke. Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household. And I love this. The people who just a chapter before them, before are supposed to create a blessing for the nations, end up causing Egypt plagues. There are two things That in the story of Abram and Sarai and God's work to redeem all things, there are two things that embody the difference between what God has promised and what is reality for God's people. Are you ready? Here are the two things. One is the promise of land. Only the problem is, Abram and Sarai aren't that great yet. And the land seems to be occupied by all sorts of other ites in the world. And so will we ever be able to get back into that land? Will we always be a people in exile? Or can we return to a land of promise, a place where all things are the way they are meant to be? Can we ever get to the land? And that which God has called Abram and Sarai to, to be the father and mother of this great nation that will be the source of redemption in the world, here's the problem, they can't have a baby. And so the second problem is barrenness. It shows up again and again in the text. So if you have your Bible still open, we get to chapter 15 and it says, after all these things, what are all the things that have just happened? Here they are. Abram has just gone to battle to rescue his knuckleheaded nephew, Lot, who later in the story will make an even bigger mess of his life. But he goes and rescues Lot, who's been taken captive. And as he does does that, he takes all the spoils of this battle and he ends up being blessed by the king of Salem, who also happens to be a priest, who gives, runs into Abram and gives him a blessing, and Abram gives him a tithe. Hold on to that story. It'll become important next summer when we get to Hebrews. Uh, but we have a king who gives a blessing, but then we have another king, the king of Sodom, who says, give me everything you've got. In fact, give me everybody that you've got. And Abram says, how about this? How about if I keep everybody, but you can have everything? Now chapter 15 opens, and Abraham has a beef with God. Thanks a lot, God. So what have I got to show for my efforts so far? I just gave everything away. And here's the biggest problem. You promised that if we followed you, you would bless us, and we would be the father and mother of many nations, and we don't have a child and one of my slaves, Eliezer, is going to inherit the little bit that I have, won't even go to anybody who's my family. Thanks a lot, God. By the way, I love this text. And so one of the things I love, especially about the Old Testament, is how open God's people are with yelling at God. Lamenting. Being frustrated in the huge gap between what God has promised and what is our reality. And Abram, has, Abram says, God, you have promised a lot and you have delivered very little. So, how does God respond? God responds by taking Abram outside and inviting him to see the stars. Maybe pushing back a little bit by saying to Abram, can you count them, huh? Can you count them, buddy? Go ahead. Get back to me when you're done. So shall your ancestors be. God responds by making a covenant. By And the word covenant in Hebrew literally means to cut. And so we get this strange ceremony, right? Where we cut up all these animals and this strange presence of God passes through them, most scholars think as an act of saying, may the same thing be done to me if I do not fulfill my promise to you, Abram. I make a covenant with you, not dependent upon you or your faithfulness, but dependent on me and my faithfulness to you. It's a powerful, important moment in not just the the life of Abram, but in the imagination of all God's people. For if you're with me this morning, here's how the story so often goes. We seem to keep making messes of things and oftentimes bigger and bigger messes. And how is God going to respond? God continues to respond in grace and mercy and redemptive love. We Wesleyan types, especially here, we we love to think about God's sovereignty in this way, as a sovereignty of love. And here's why that's important, because sometimes when we use a word like God's sovereignty, we think about that in terms of sovereign will, as though God has chosen all these things to happen, and now we're just kind of living out God's script. But the way this is narrated is that God continues to be, at times, even shocked by human sin. But rather than deciding to do something else or just giving up on it all, God continues to respond in love and grace and mercy, redeeming and covenanting and blessing. Whereas Paul says, working for the good of those who look to him and are called according to his purpose. Keeps bringing things back to that gap between what is promised and what in the moment feels like reality. That's good news, by the way. It deserved a couple of amens. Thank you. As I've been walking through these texts um, this time, I've noticed something that I've known before, but, but this time, especially as I've been reading commentaries and looking through kind of digging in, it's been so much fun. We come across these moments where scholars say, hey, did you notice here that I'm not sure what to do with this, because they really shouldn't know this here. But they seem to know it. In other words, as we read these stories, we're constantly reminded that the people telling these stories are kind of way down the line historically, and then looking back and retelling the story. And when they are retelling the story, sometimes they seem to include things that we're not sure those characters should know yet. Now, you're not with me, but this is actually, this is going to be fun and heretical, so hang on, wake up. So, for example, when I was reading the Noah story this time, when Noah gets out of the ark, he makes a distinction between clean and unclean animals when he starts to make sacrifices. Now, here's the problem with that. There may be an ancient sense of what is clean and unclean, but believe me, we don't know what's clean and unclean until we get to Leviticus in about a month and a half. That's when this series is really going to bog down. So we don't know what clean and unclean is until the giving of the law in Leviticus, but somehow in the Noah story, we already have clean and unclean animals. Did you follow that? Now here's something, don't email me because this one's on the border of heretical, but, but it also made me wonder, after the people get through, are brought out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness for 40 years, that 40 year journey in the wilderness, I think is what shapes their imagination to see 40 as this important number that is really long while we're in it, but it eventually does get over. But it's so long that by the time it's over, we've been changed. Are you with me? And so 40 takes on that significance over and over in the scripture. But here's my question, even as I read the Noah story, did it really rain for 40 days and 40 nights in the Noah story? Or did it just rain a long time? And they took this Exodus number of 40 and went, well, it probably rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Because by by the end of the rain, it was over. Are you with me? You can take that or leave that, although it was pretty good. Um, But here's a super big one. I think it's 124 times in Genesis. I think the first time is in chapter 2, verse 4. We're given a particular name for God. Now, every time you read the text, as you're reading, you'll notice when this particular name for God is used, it's capitalized in the text, right? L-O-R-D. It's there to remind us that this is a very sacred name for God. In Hebrew, which didn't have vowels initially, the consonants are either YH, uh, I gotta get it right, YHVH, or no, YHWH or YH, or JHVH. Did you get that? I didn't. YHVH, no, YHWH or JHVH. This will be on the test. <laughs> so in other words, if you throw vowels into those four con- consonants, you get either Yahweh or Jehovah. But this capital word reminds us we're not supposed to say that. Right? It's the sacred name for God. It's used 124 times beginning at chapter 2 verse 4. But here's the problem with that. We don't know that name until later when God gives it to Moses at the burning bush. These cheaters? They're just throwing stuff in the story that we don't know yet, but we know, but they don't know. Did you follow that? Now here's, here's the big heresy for the day. Go back with me to chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Have no doubt that your descendants will live as immigrants in a land that isn't their own, where they will be oppressed slaves for 400 years. But after I punish the nation they serve, they will leave it with great wealth. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried after a good long life. The fourth generation will return here since the Amorites' wrongdoing won't have reached its peak until then. So when I read that, I thought, come on. Did God really, in the midst of this covenant, say, oh, by the way, get this down, Abram. A few generations from now, your people are going to go into slavery. It's going to last a while, but don't worry, they'll come back. And it'll all kind of work out. And part of me thinks, if God had said that to him then, I really wish Abraham would have written that down and kept it, told his ancestors this, because then when Joseph thought about going to Egypt, he would have said, wait a minute, don't go to Egypt. We'll end up being slaves, Remember? Do you follow that? So I could be wrong about this, probably not, but I could be wrong about this. But I think these four verses that we find here in chapter 15 are scribes doing a crazy thing. They are telling this story to people who have survived the exodus in Egypt. And they are retelling this covenant story with Abraham because just in case they don't understand this, He wants them to know that the covenant that God made to Abram and Sarai is the reason they got brought out of slavery. Because what God promised to Abram actually was a promise also made to Abram's ancestors. That even slavery would not have the final word in God's people, but God would work and redeem just as he worked and redeemed in the life of Abram and Sarai and brought to them the child that he had promised. Did you follow that? So here's why I think that's important. Because I think that means that it is perfectly okay for you and I to somewhere in chapter 15 put our story there. So that somewhere in this text we can imagine Yahweh, we're not supposed to name the name yet, but Yahweh, saying to Abram, someday, a lot of generations from now, you're going to have children in faith. And they're going to walk through their own struggles. They're going to live in a turbulent time Or much of culture is going through upheaval. They'll be in moments where they'll wonder, is there a future for the body of Christ in the world? But Abram, I've been faithful to you and I will be faithful to them. Probably the key verse in the whole text is when the text says, and Abram believed God. Most of your translations say this way, and Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does it mean to believe God in that moment? To have faith, I I think for Abraham certainly isn't, I believe and I believe so strongly that then finally God says, finally you believe, now I'm gonna bring it, right? Because sometimes we can think of faith that way. Faith is this thing that if we believe it, hard enough, deep enough, passionately enough, then the vending machine of God gives us that thing finally that we have hoped for and have been promised. That's not how faith works. But faith is a kind of mixture with hope that says faith does not actualize the promise because the promise always comes as gift from God. But only those who hope can receive the gift from God. Let me say that again. Faith is a posture of hope that allows us then to ultimately be in the place where we can receive that gift finally from God. Several of you asked me last week why the Mariners didn't make it into my sermon. So let me fix that right now. I don't know if you watched the game yesterday when the new creation began to break into the old... But if you were watching the game about the sixth inning, the Mariners were down about, they were down eight to one. And I have to say, there was football on. There were some other things that I could do during the day. And I just came so close to clicking that thing off, deciding to tune in today instead. I've seen this. (laughs) I've been a Mariner fan almost my whole life, right? I have seen this played out. Time to move on. I thought, oh, just one more inning, right? And maybe you were one of those who clicked off in the sixth inning, but if you stayed, ah, still not quite over it, right? It's a silly illustration, but faith is that willingness to stay tuned and connected to God, even when it seems like that which has been promised. And the reality in the moment are so far from each other. It doesn't actualize that thing. But without that posture of hope for Abram and Sarai and their willingness to continue to walk with God many more years until Isaac joins the party. But this morning I am convinced That the covenant love, the sovereign love of God that continues to work and make all things new was not just for Abram and Sarai and for Isaac and for Jacob and for Joseph and for some folks in the desert in the Old Testament time period or even for some folks in the New Testament church. That we are invited to know that the God who covenants with Abraham covenants with us. And our story belongs there right next to Israel's story of bondage in Egypt. Delivery from Babylon. The coming of Christ. God is making all things new. And so this morning I would like to close uh, with the time of open altar prayer. We oftentimes think of altars rightly as places of covenant. Covenant places where we are reminded that God has not gone anywhere. God's faithfulness and love remains. But sometimes there are moments where we respond by leaning into that. And I even love the posture that we sometimes take at the altar where this is not about us standing and doing work. This is about us leaning into and upon the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so this morning, if you need to pray, if, if you are carrying challenges and fears and moments where, the, where this promise seems so far from what is reality, go ahead. Write your story today into Genesis chapter 15. Lean hard on the graciousness of God. If you would like somebody to pray with you this morning and anoint you, a pastor to pray with you, in particular, for, for healing today. If you come to my far left, or your far right, the pastor will come and pray with you. We sang a song a little bit earlier in the service, a song that rehearses some of this history. We need the God of Jacob, <laughs> the God of David, the God of our ancestors to continue to move in our moment. And so as we sing that this morning, I I invite you to come um, to lean hard on the goodness of God. Help us in this moment, God. make uh, Make this like you made it for Abram. Make it a sacred moment. Remind us of your goodness today. Let's sing together. Almighty God we are uh, grateful today for your steadfast love and mercy for your sovereign love that continues to work in the midst of our our brokenness our frustrations our sadness our inadequacies, too often even our lack of faith. But today, at the very beginning of your word, We don't have to get very far until we're reminded of how broken things can get and how far from the promise we can be. But we don't have to get very far until we are reminded that you do not let sin have the last word or darkness have the last word or evil have the last word or even death have the last word you are not at war with us you have hung up your bow you have not left us in exile you have gone with us and you walk with us still And even with our ancestor Abram when we're frustrated and not sure promises of land or an heir will ever happen and we certainly know it won't come in our own power or in our own ingenuity or in our own strength. Remind us again of your covenant love. Help us by your spirit to be in a posture of faith and hope. Not to make that promise happen, but to be in that position of faith and hope so that we can receive the continual gifts of your newness and the final gift of your making all things new. And so help us to believe. Set things right in our life, because our hope, as the psalmist says today, our hope is in you. I pray for those uh, who are here this morning who, who can easily narrate themselves into chapter fifteen. I, I feel that today. I feel a long ways from what you have promised. Teach us to trust and to hope in you, to be patient with your goodness. So come in these various circumstances, God, and redeem broken family situations, economic situations, health situations, a very broken world. Come, come, make all things new. God of Jacob, God of David, God of Mary, come, come our hope is in you. It's in the name of your son that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. What
1: gift of grace